This is They Create Worlds, episode 181, The Fabric of Koei. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. A quick programming note. Near the end of the episode, we do discuss erotic games at a PG-13 level. This may not be appropriate for younger listeners. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Today, we get to stay in Japan and look at a company that took over other companies. But first, we have to figure out what the company is that's going to take over the other companies. And we're talking, of course, about Koei. Yes, Koei is one of the truly interesting companies in the Japanese computer and video game industry because they were first to do so many things in Japan. They introduced the concept of military strategy games to Japan. They were the first company to do an RPG in Japan. They were even the first company to pioneer erotic or erogi games in Japan. Once they had done all of these things and mastered the art of strategy and RPGs, they decided much later that they should also be an action game company, and so they did some of that too. It's a company that morphs to fill a lot of different niches, and it almost entirely comes back to the interests of the power couple that have run the company from its inception, Yoichi and Keiko Arakawa. So if I'm understanding you correctly, they actually had their hands in PC games and in console games. Did they have any hands in arcade games? No. Well, I mean, they do now in a sense because they bought Tecmo, but they bought Tecmo after Tecmo was no longer releasing arcade games, though they did inherit Tecmo's arcade operations when they bought Tecmo, which Tecmo still had at the time. I don't think Koei Tecmo has them anymore. So no, they weren't in arcades, but they did make the transition from computers into consoles and are still today one of the more highly regarded companies in the Japanese industry under the combined name of Koei Tecmo. So they started off in PCs, then moved over to consoles, and you said this was done by a power couple. I guess we're just going to have to start with them. When did they meet? Absolutely. So with all apologies to Ken and Roberta Williams... I don't think there's a more remarkable power couple in the entire history of the video game industry as Yoichi and Keiko Arakawa, the founders of the company Koei. They uh, have not only continued to run this highly successful game company to this day, but they are also two of the wealthiest individuals in Japan. We're talking about a family that is worth billions of dollars, not billions of yen, billions of dollars. Not largely because of their video game activities, though that certainly helped. To start, we do, as you said, need to just talk about these two individuals that had very different backgrounds, but had some similar interests, which ended up bringing them together. We should start with the businesswoman, Keiko Arakawa. Keiko was born in, I believe, 1948, sounds about right, in Hiyoshi, Yokohama. So Yokohama is a big port city very near to Tokyo, and Yoshi is, I believe, a district of Yokohama these days. Her family came from some degree of money. Her grandfather had been a doctor on her mother's side, and her father was a dentist. 
So uh, a lot of history in the medical profession. However, her father died when she was three years old. And at that point, they actually moved to a Guma prefecture out in the country. So the city girl had to adapt to life in the country, which was difficult and resulted in some bullying and whatnot when she was in school for a while before she was sent back to live with her grandmother to go to high school back in the city again. Keiko was always very industrious, and she was very talented with her hands. She was an artist. She drew. She also loved crafting. I say this was in past tense as if she's not still alive, but just talking about her childhood here. She liked to knit lace, and she also made beaded bags that she would hand out to relatives. She had a fairly large extended family, not a large personal family, but a larger extended family, aunts, uncles, cousins, and whatnot. When she would make these crafts, these gifts, and hand them out, she would get a little bit of spending money as a result. And because the family, the extended family, was kind of well off, that little bit of spending money was sometimes actually a lot of spending money. She didn't spend all of it. She liked to save it. She was very savvy with money from a young age as well. She was also a very strong and independent woman, which is, let's just say, not the way Japanese women were raised to be at that time in the culture. She very much wanted to have a career. Her relatives were encouraging her to go to a junior college someplace, get a job as a receptionist, find a husband as fast as possible, and then be the good traditional Japanese housewife like you're supposed to be. But she had no interest in any of that. So she ended up going to Tama Art University, where she enrolled in the design department. Because even though she was a decent painter, the competition would be much higher to get in going into a pure profession like that. So she went to the design department at Tama Art University. While she was there, she received an education, but she received an education in many ways because one of her professors, her main professor, was a big believer that you couldn't do art unless you really experienced the world. So he actually encouraged his students to go out and have a good time and party. So she would go out into the entertainment districts. She would drink and carouse and play pachinko in the pachinko parlors, which she was very good at, and mahjong in the mahjong parlors. All of these things that weren't, strictly speaking, proper for a young lady to be doing, in addition to her studies. Also, she was going to school at a time when the university system in Japan went through quite a series of traumatic events, because this was the very height of the student protest movement in Japan, part of the larger student protest movements that were also happening in places like the United States during the Vietnam War. It got so bad that universities throughout the country in 1968-1969 actually had to close for a whole semester. Students were constantly locked out of classes. There was not a lot of learning going on. To fill that time, she also took a bunch of odd jobs. She did illustrations for a children's TV show. She designed displays, window displays, for the Mitsukoshi department store. She illustrated book covers. She also worked as a salesperson for Mitsukoshi in addition to designing displays for them. As she began earning money from all of these part-time jobs, she took a keen interest in investing, and she became really good at investing. She did all her own investing. She would sit by the radio for hours listening to the channel where they would just read off all the stock prices, like the tickers you see on financial television stations today where it's showing, you know, this stock up this much, this stock down this much. 
back then, they didn't have those stickers on the television, so there would be someone literally on the radio that would just read all of that out. And then when they were done, they would start over and read it all again. She would listen to that for hours and get a real sense of what was hot and what was not, and she did her own investing. She was very successful with it. I mentioned that the Arakawas are some of the wealthiest people in Japan today, and the reason for that is Keiko's investing ability. Obviously, Koei has made money, and they've made money personally through Koei, but believe me, while the founders of Konami and Capcom and Square and all of those companies are not in any way hurting for money, the Arakawas have done better than any of them, and that's because it's the combination of what they were able to do with the business, and Arakawa's just amazing ability to invest that money for even greater returns. It was also when she was in college that she met our other protagonist in this story of Koei, which is, of course, Yoichi Arakawa. Yoichi Arakawa was born in very different circumstances. He was born in the city, or the town even, of Ashikaga in a more rural part of the country. Ashikaga was at the center of the Japanese textile industry, and in fact, his father was a wholesaler of dyes and industrial chemicals for the textile industry, the local textile industry, a business that went back to pre-World War II. He was born in 1950s, two years younger than Keiko. While Keiko was this artist and this expressive person, was headstrong and led with emotion, Yoichi was a tinkerer. He was a kind of more mathematical, science, logic kind of individual. From an early age, he did get interested in electronics, like so many of the people that made up this first wave of game creators in the video game industry. You can see the seeds right there. Someone who's good with business, money, art and design, and someone who's really good at the technology. That is sort of like, as you said, the power couple. Not yet in the romantic sense here, but the sense of that's what every good company needs. Someone great at business, someone really good with ideas and implementation. Absolutely. Arakawa, from an early age, he was building radio kits from magazines. You could get radio hobbyist magazines, and there would be kits advertised. You could buy and build your own little radios. He was doing that from a very early age. He also loved games, board games of all types. He loved Go. He loved Shogi, sometimes called Japanese chess. He dabbled at some point in there with some of the early military board games. I don't know if it was Avalon Hill product that was imported or what, but he had some exposure to early board war games. He also even created some of his own little games when he was a child. He was fascinated by history. Ashikaga had a rich history surrounding the Ashikaga clan, and he kind of grew up surrounded by that and became very interested in Japanese history and in uh, historical fiction. He actually created his own little card game at one point when he was a kid, where he statted out all of these individuals, these great leaders from Japan's history, from like the Warring States period and whatnot, as well as different foot soldiers. And, you know, they'd have different values. You know, the ninja could do this against this guy, and the foot soldier could do this against this guy. The beginnings you can see already of what would grow at the company Koei itself many years later. When it came time for uh, Yuichi to go off to college, his family fully expected that he was going to take over the family dye and industrial chemical wholesaler business. So they encouraged him to go to a university with a strong business department and major in business. 
So he went to Keio University in Tokyo, which was originally established as a school for Western studies, the oldest uh, Western university in Japan. It is considered one of the finest business schools in the country. Now, since he wasn't from the area, he needed a place to stay. He needed some place to room, and there was a department at the university that was responsible with helping students get housing in the area. It just so happened that Keiko's grandmother, they had this big house. They weren't really using all of it, and so Keiko's grandmother decided to rent out the top floor of their house, the second floor, it was two-story, to boarders. Yoichi ended up being connected with them and ended up renting the top floor of Keiko's grandmother's house. Keiko was around, too, because she was going to university at Tama. So that's how they met. There was nothing romantic about it at first. In fact, they didn't really have much regard for each other at all. His enduring memory of her at that time was just constantly running into her around town at the entertainment districts and whatnot. One of the enduring images, he said, is her sitting at a pachinko machine with tons of tokens piled up because she's done so well, cigarette dangling as she's playing the pachinko machines because she was really quite good at it. Over time, they ended up starting to socialize with each other. They discovered that they had similar interests. Joichi also liked pachinko and mahjong. They both liked jazz. So even though they didn't have a huge amount in common personality-wise, they did have a great many interests in common, and they ended up falling in love and getting married. It wasn't a marriage that everyone was happy with at the time, just because they came from somewhat different worlds, but they won through, and I doubt there's anyone that regretted it long-term, because they've obviously done some very great things together. Flash forward to the late 1970s. At this time, the Japanese textile industry is in incredible decline. There's been a textile industry that's developed in Southeast Asia. Cheap imports are kind of wreaking havoc with the local industry, and a lot of businesses in that textile industry are running into a lot of trouble, including the Arakawa's business. His father did everything he could to try to keep it going, but at the end, the debts were too great, and the company ended up going bankrupt, and he ended up having to close the company. Before that final closure, when he was still trying to save it, he insisted that Yoichi come home and try to work with him to salvage the business. So that went on for about a year. This is 1977-ish. I don't have the exact year, but based on other dates, it would be around then. Keiko wasn't that enthused about going out to the country, but partially the challenge, I think, of trying to save this business drew her to because she did have business instincts and, you know, she did end up agreeing to go. So they relocated to Ashikaga to a villa kind of on the edge of Ashikawa that was basically in the country. It was a bit worn down and dilapidated to the Arakawa's having seen better times. Uh, Keiko has a lot of stories about how it was drafty and there were giant bugs everywhere, and she had to spend all of her time fixing it up since she was talented at design and, and art and all of that. You know, she actually threw herself into trying to fix up the villa as best as she could while Yoichi Arakawa was trying to run this business with his father and try to turn things around. After about a year, it was clear that wasn't working, and Yoichi was eager to go out on his own, so he actually ended up founding his own company, Hirakawa Sangyo, to strike out on his own. He just wanted to run his own business. 
even with all of these difficulties, his father still really had hopes that the family could continue in their traditional business of wholesaling these dyes and industrial chemicals, because, I mean, this was their trade, and that's a really big deal in Japan. So he didn't want the business to end with him. So even though the company had been forced to close, he really pressured Yoichi to stay in the textile business with his new company. He made the introductions to all the people that he worked with, that he had wholesaled with, and really tried to get Yoichi into the business. So this Arakawa Sangyo was started as a wholesaler of dyes and industrial chemicals, just as his father's company had been before. But it was a brand new company established in 1978. They didn't really want to just go with that kind of name. They really wanted something a little more interesting, Yoichi and Keiko did. They were so busy, though, Keiko trying to keep up the villa and Yoichi just trying to keep the business going, that they didn't really have time to really think up a name for the thing. So they finally consulted with, of all things, an I Ching instructor, who was also a member of the Diet, the Parliament of Japan. I Ching is a divination thing. It's an ancient Chinese pseudoscience based upon the art of divination. This is someone who's supposed to, you know, be able to read signs and, and make predictions and whatnot. So they, they went to this I Ching instructor. I have a very high-level knowledge of I Ching. And it's a kind of interesting old divination thing, like Alex said where you ask a question or concentrate on a question that you want. And it's supposed to give you a little more of a actionable answer than most divination techniques. Once you learn how to do this, you can actually just do it with a handful of coins or a handful of sticks and stuff. And it all really boils down to doing some math and some numbers. So you toss the coins around, whether or not it's heads or tails. You arbitrarily say, hey, if it's a head, it's for this. It has this value. Books and stuff go into that detail on all of that. What I found really particularly interesting about it when I actually listened about this kind of divination is just the fact that it has a remarkable way to take your answer and at least provide something that is somewhat actionable in your answer, whatever your question is. Now, the reason for that could be everything from, depending on what you believe in, from you're tapping into some sort of supernatural power to hey, we're taking advantage of sort of the effect of if you ever had a horoscope done, where a lot of those are very actionable no matter what your uh, actual sign is. Exactly. You get out of it what you bring into it. I mean, there's no cosmic forces actually at work, but it, at least it's a way of focusing you if you're undecided on something. It's, it's like rolling a d20, except with a little more math involved. So they went and consulted with this I Ching instructor on what they should name the company. He advised that they shouldn't just call it like Arakawa Sangyo, because even though they were in this industrial business now, they weren't necessarily going to stay in that business. I don't know whether they told him about the hardships the company was having, and he sussed out that, okay, maybe this isn't going to last if the last company failed, or he just got the sense that they wouldn't necessarily want to continue the family business. He said that they should really choose a name that doesn't tie them down to any particular industry, but which identified who Yoichi Arakawa was as a person. So he focused on two kanji, ko, K-O, and e, E-I. Now, of course, if you know anything about Japanese, you know that kanji do not just have one meaning. Kanji have many, many 
levels of meaning and can be translated in many different ways or interpreted even in many different ways. Because it's not even about translating it into English. They can just plain be interpreted many different ways. We talked about this in some of our Nintendo episodes, how Nintendo is made up of the kanji nen, ten, and do, and that that has been traditionally translated as leave luck to heaven or put your fortune in heaven's hands. But we don't actually know if that's what it means, and there's actually some very logical readings that you can make that it actually meant something completely different. That's just the nature of Japanese kanji. So ko and a both have several different meanings, but one of the meanings of both of them is honor or glory. There's also a particular subtext to this honor and glory meaning that can mean that you are through your own initiative by yourself, are bringing honor or glory, this idea of succeeding on your own. He chose these two kanji, the I Ching instructor did, more for the honor aspect than the glory aspect. He said that this will show that you are an honorable company run by an honorable person who is self-sufficient and able to succeed on his own merits, essentially. So that's why they named the company Koei. Koei itself doesn't directly translate into anything in English, like that's not a word per se, but those two kanji can mean honor, and that is where the name Koei came from. So the company's founded in 1978. He tries to do the textile things at first. It's hard going. I mean, the same economic conditions are still there just because they have a new company not saddled with the debts and the problems of the old company doesn't mean that suddenly the entire textile industry is turned around. He very quickly starts to branch out into other areas, not just textiles. They start getting into doing packaging, sales promotion materials, like other stuff that isn't just textiles. I'm sure some of Keiko's design capabilities are helping to move them in this direction as well. I know she was involved in the business, so I don't know how thoroughly she was involved with the business, just because I have fragmentary sources on all of this, this being very Japanese, Japan-specific kind of stuff. You know, he wanted to leave his own mark. Uh, He was always kind of half-hearted about following his father into the textile industry. You put that together with the fact that the industry wasn't going so well, and yeah, not really enthused about that. But of course, you know, he's branching out the company, and as he's doing this, he's trying to become better at running a company. I mean, he did go to college for the business, but, you know, he's never had experience doing this kind of thing before. So he's also going to bookstores, libraries, wherever, getting books written by notable Japanese business leaders and trying to learn more about being a successful businessman. It's as he's going around to stores, you know, finding this reading material that he comes across the first microcomputer magazines in Japan. Just as in the United States, when microcomputer kits started first coming in in Japan, and it was a few years later than in the United States, because Japan's in this period always just two or three or four years behind the United States technologically. When the first microcomputer kits started showing up in Japan, made by companies like NEC and Sharp and these uh, great uh, Japanese electronics companies. Just as in the United States, there were magazines that grew up around them that were geared towards a hobbyist crowd. 
you know, there wasn't much you could do with a computer back then. And a lot of these computers, though not all of them, were kits, which meant you had to have some electronic knowledge to even engage with this. Microcomputers, computers in the home, were not really a mass market product at this point. But if you're an electronics enthusiast, you might be interested. So there would be magazines that would cater to these people and give tips and tricks on how to build the computers, how to program the computers, ideas for using the computers, and would also have type-in listings for programs, many of which were games. This was his introduction to the world of computers, and he was very intrigued by the games, the type-in listings and all of that, but he was also very intrigued with the idea that the computer may be the future of office automation. Because a lot of people are writing breathless articles about how within however many years, you know, we'll all have computers running everything and your whole office will be automated, your whole home will be automated, and then you can just get in your flying car and go down to the flying bar and uh, live a great life or something, you know. All of these wildly optimistic projections, obviously more and more is getting automated by computers all the time, but very optimistic for circa 1979, However, none of this was lost on Yuichi, and he thought, this computer thing may really be able to help me run my business. I may be able to put together an inventory program. I could put together a financial management program. I could put together a program that automatically calculates quotes when people want to solicit business from me. There's programs I can use on a computer to do this. And so he got interested. He got a kit, an NEC TK80 kit one of the earliest kit computers, and started fooling around with it a little bit. And he really started talking up the idea of computers with his colleagues, with his business partners, and with his wife, Keiko. Keiko could see that this was a passion that was growing here and something that Yoichi felt very strongly about and could also see the logic that there might be a practical use for this. I mean, you know, it's a toy at some degree at this point, but there may also be a practical use for this. The business was not doing very well at this time, so they really couldn't afford to get a decent, fully assembled computer. They cost a lot of money. But Keiko Arikawa was putting quite the nest egg together from all of her very savvy investing. She was already becoming highly successful in all of that. She had some money. So as a 30th birthday present, 1980, she bought Yoichi a Sharp MZ80C computer, one of these microcomputers on the market, one of the more well-regarded ones at that time, fully assembled, ready to go. So he started reading all the books and magazines he could. He learned BASIC. He learned how to code a machine language. He became a truly expert programmer in a very short period of time. One of the hallmarks of Yoichi Arakawa is he is an incredibly good programmer, very talented. Turns out he had a knack for it, though, like I said, he did have a science and mathematics and all of that background kind of going way back. He starts creating these programs. He creates a quote program, you know, to put together business quotes. He creates an inventory management program. He creates financial management software to help him run the business. In his spare time, he's also reading through these type-in listings. He's programming games, you know, typing in games from the listings, and also starting to think about making his own games as well. As this is all going on, he's still talking up computers and the concept of office automation with all of his business partners and other people that he works with. So he starts getting contracted by some of his business partners. They're like, oh, all the stuff you're saying about computers and the kind of programs you can use to help run your business sounds really interesting. Why don't you make me some of that software? Like, oh, 
Okay. Why don't I make you some of that software? Slowly, this company, Koei, is starting to morph into a computer applications company, a computer software company. At this point, just very much on a contract basis, just for close family and friends. The other thing that he does, because he's so enamored with the potential of computers, is he decides that he wants to open his own computer store in Ashikaga. Their villa's on the outskirts of town, but he wants to open this store in the heart of Ashikaga. Now, again, remember, the business is not doing that well. He doesn't really have the money to go lease or buy a building and build inventory and get stuff on the shelves and everything. But once again, Keiko comes to the rescue because Keiko has all of her investments. So to allow Yoichi Arakawa to found this computer store, which he calls Koei Microcomputer Systems, she sells her stock in this interesting little up-and-coming company called Nintendo. Hmm. Little fun connection there. She had been invested in Nintendo at the time, and she sold her Nintendo stock to finance the opening of this computer store. During the early part of Nintendo, so they're obviously growing very rapidly, and thus her investments got really good return. Though it was before the Famicom boom. Arguably, if she had just foregone the store and held on to that stock a bit longer, they may have made a bit more money on all of that. At the end of the day, they're worth billions of dollars today, so I think they did okay. But that's just one of those interesting little coincidences, because they weren't in the game industry at this point, not in any way. They weren't aspiring to be a game company at this point. Nintendo was their entree into the computer sales business. He's got the store, he's doing the computer software programming, he's selling business software to a small number of clients. Later in 1980, he decides that he wants to try his hand at making his own game, because he's been having so much fun typing in games, playing games, learning about games. I mean, he's, he's a huge gamer, still to this day. I mean, he gave an interview a few years ago where he said, like, these days I get home from the office and then, like, I play games all evening until, like, one in the morning. He does nothing but play games in his free time. Back in these days, he didn't just play games in his free time. He also liked to read and do other things. But he said as he's gotten older, basically all he does anymore is play games. Like, he is a true gamer. And we're not talking about going and playing Solitaire or Sudoku on his computer. I mean, he loves RPGs. He plays the games of the Persona series. He plays Souls games, Bloodborne and Dark Souls and all of those kind of games, real hardcore, difficult action games. So, I mean, he is he is a true gamer with a capital G. What I find funny is you said that he was 30 in 1980, right? Yeah. So add 40 years to that. So he's in his 70s and he's doing hardcore gaming. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I doubt he's setting any records doing it. But yeah, no, he thoroughly enjoys games and he plays them even more now even than he did when he was younger according to what he said in interviews that's pretty amazing yeah i hope you and i are in our 70s and still able to do that <laughs> right so he decides that he's going to make his own game at this period of time the market i mean the computer game market's still very primitive most of the games that are out there are like ports of arcade games i mean it's your breakout style games it's your space invaders style games 
it's all of these kinds of things. And that's it's not really where his interests are, because he's always been interested in something a little deeper. You know, we talked about how in school, you know, he played all sorts of board games and strategy games like uh, Go and Shogi and made his own card game with historical figures and, and all of that kind of thing. He liked deeper strategy games, and that really wasn't something that was out there. So that seemed like a niche where he could create something that had never been done before. So he created a game called The Battle of Kawanakajima which he started in 1980 and completed in 1981. This is a historical game that refers to a very important battle during the Sengoku period, or so-called Warring States period, of Japan between a couple of very important daimo, or warlords. There were actually several battles fought at this site, but this specifically refers to the conflict between the daimo Takeda Shingen and Usugi Kenshin. All of these contests were between these two warlords, but the, the most famous and the one that the game is based on is specifically fight a battle that took place in October of 1561. This was a very popular subject. These battles became kind of legendary. They were very common in woodblock prints, and there was a movie based on the battle that was released in 1969. This was just part of this historical era that uh, Yuichi Arakawa was very interested in. So he decided to make this game, and it's a strategy game, which was something that hadn't really been done before in Japanese games. I won't claim to know whether it was the absolute first strategy game ever made in Japan. It very well may not have been, but they certainly weren't common at the time. The gameplay was fairly simple, and it was largely based on Stratego, of all things. Stratego, for those that don't know, is a board game. It's, it's more of a kid's board game. It's a light strategy game. It's not a real war game. In Stratego, you have two opposing armies of equal size that are squaring off across a game board. Each of your units is named after a different military rank. Most of them are. There are a couple of exceptions. They have a power number, and the more powerful your unit, more powerful units always defeat less powerful units. The twist of it, to try to give it a kind of fog of war effect, is that you set up your pieces on your side, and only you can see their values. The side that faces the other player is blank, and you only get to see your side until you make contact with an enemy, then you can kind of figure it out. There's a little bit of strategy involved, but there's also a lot of luck and random chance in it as well in, in the way you set up your armies. I mean, you can be clever about the way you set up your armies, obviously, there's strategy in that. But then at the end of the day, there's also some luck of how your two armies meet each other because there's no die rolling or probability or anything to determine the outcome of combat. It's just if you have the higher level unit, you defeat the lower level unit. Your job is to capture the other enemy's flag, which represents their headquarters, which is an unmoving unit. There are a few units that don't move. There are bombs that you can place that are basically traps that, that blow up something that come into contact with them. And then there's your headquarters unit, which also can't move and has to be captured. Stratego was one of the games that uh, Arakawa had been a fan of. And so he modeled a lot of what he did on that game. Now, it's not exactly the same. It's turn-based, but it's not that fog of war, line up all your units kind of thing exactly. But the, the idea of having units of different power and different capabilities against each other, he took from that. There's cavalry units that move faster. There's ranged units like arquebusers that attack from a greater distance than other units. You know, there's, there's these strengths and weaknesses kinds of things. There's the two opposing leaders 
who are surrounded by bodyguards that help defend them but can't move. This is very much from Stratego, because Stratego has the two headquarters units that can't move. Just like in Stratego, the objective is to take out the opposing leader, to get your army down to where the leader unit is and take it out. Borrowed some from Stratego, borrowed some just from his love of games like Go and Shogi, uh, etc., and created this game, Kawanakajima no Kasen, in Japanese, which translates as Battle of Kawanakajima in English. By this time, you know, these magazines that he likes, that he's getting these type-in listings from and learning all about computers from, they are starting to sell some software as well. People are starting to sell software in these magazines through mail order. This is a similar progression to what happened in the United States just a few years before that. There was no real business at this time. There weren't really computer game publishers yet in any real sense that we're getting games to retail or anything, but individuals or incorporated individuals, small companies like Koei, were starting to take out ads in magazines and do mail-order business. He thought this might be kind of interesting. You know, it's kind of a fun game. Maybe he'd be able to sell it. He takes out an advertisement, a half-page advertisement, in MyCom Monthly, one of these computer magazines, advertising this game alongside a second game because Keiko, always the savvy business person, believed that they'd have more success if they offered two games for sale, not just because that doubles the number of options that people have, but it gives the sense that there's an actual production going on here. Like, it's not just some guy that made one random game. It's like, look, it's a company. They have, like, multiple games. So they actually created an investing game, the investment game because of Keiko's love of investing. That just seemed like an interesting second thing to do. So it's a game where there are stocks and they have prices and then there'd be random news events or whatever that happened. Stock prices would go up and down based on events going on. And so you'd try to invest in the right stocks and make money and all of that kind of thing. Koei starts in 1981 as a computer game publisher. The company's existed since 1978, but in 1981, they start as a computer game publisher, sort of, mail-order distribution business, with Kawanakajima no Kasen and the investment game. Yoichi does not market these games under his own name. I mean, obviously, they're marketed under Koei, but he doesn't even go by his own name as the creator of these products. He decides to go by an alias, a pseudonym. The reason he did this, interesting because he's been asked about this, and what he said is he was hoping that if this was something that caught on and something that became bigger, that he could pass on the mantle of his game creation to other people, you know, create a workshop or, you know, when he dies, someone else or retires, somebody else can take over from him. He wanted an overarching persona that would be the creator of these games, kind of like how the Hardy Boys books are all credited to F.W. Dixon, but there have actually been many, many, many people that have written Hardy Boys mystery books, and same with Nancy Drew with that author. Many, many different people have written Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew mystery books, but they all use the same pen names. F.W. Dixon for Hardy Boys and... Carolyn Keene for Nancy Drew to give this idea that there's this one kind of visionary doing all of this stuff. So instead of going by Yuichi Arakawa, he decided to go by Ko Shibusawa as his nom de guerre, kind of like Richard Garriott doing Lord British or like these Nancy Drew things. He chose that name, the Ko, 
which in this case is spelled uh, in English K-O-U, but there's a lot of interchangeability with whether you put a U on, on the end of those syllables, I think, when you're doing the translating. The ko comes from the same place as the ko in koi. He chose it because it represented honor. The Shibusawa came from a 19th century Japanese economist by the name of Eiichi Shibusawa, who founded some of Japan's earliest private companies and is often called the father of Japanese capitalism. This just kind of goes to show kind of what the theme of Koei is, quite frankly, is summed up right there, because it's a historical figure, always got to love the history, and the father of Japanese capitalism showing that there has always been this economic ambition. Even today, the Arakawas always say, yes, we have a successful company. Yes, we do fine. Yes, we're very wealthy, but we really haven't really met all our goals yet because we are not the number one video game publisher in Japan. There's always that ambition behind what the Arakawas do to always be bigger and better. And even choosing this pen name, again, is even a part of that psychologically because he's like, I want these games to be associated with something bigger than me, something that can be carried on by people who are not me, something that can just go on and on and perpetuate. There's always that undercurrent to the activities of Koei. They do the mail order thing, and of course they also sell it in their store, because he does have the store at this time. At first he's kind of dejected because they're not selling many in the store, and uh, his employees, because he has some part-time employees that are working in the store, his employees saying, yeah, no one's really picking it up or anything. But then the orders start coming in, and they come in at a very decent clip. It turns out the reason why I wasn't selling much in the store is that, of course, these are games on cassettes. This is very early in the business, so there was lots of piracy. It ends up selling 10,000 units which is pretty incredible for the time, but it was played by many more people because piracy was rampant. It was a very cottage industry. Yuichi, of course, did all the programming in the game. Keiko, with her design skills, she drew the illustrations for the box. She did the ad copy, so all the creative side, the creative writing, the creative drawing and everything to help sell it. Then they had their part-time employees in the store help out with the duplication very primitive in these days. They would get one master cassette player and then serially link it to 20 others and then start them all at the same time. And then it would record from the master to 20 at a time and they'd make 20 and then they'd do 20 more and then 20 more and all the way up to 10,000 units by the time it was done selling. They realized, okay, this is a thing. We're going to be able to probably make a living doing this. We can sell stuff in this. Let's forget about the business software. Let's forget entirely about the textile business or whatever else that Koei had done in the past. We are now a computer game company. They keep the store going for a little bit longer, but as the computer game business gets more and more momentum behind it, they do also end up closing down the store as well because it's just a distraction because their real business is now very much making games. So where to go from here? Koei has already pioneered because things like investment games and military strategy games, this just isn't something that's seen in the market at this time. I mean, they're very pioneering in that regard. He starts to look for other areas that are interesting to him in which they can continue to be pioneers where other people are not really charting a path. Again, that's kind of the hallmark of the company going on from this point. I said, you know, they were responsible for many innovative, unique things, a lot of firsts or almost firsts or pioneering stuff. And a lot of that is really just that 
philosophy of A, he wants to do stuff that interests him, and some of his interests are a little more eclectic. But it's also B, he doesn't want to follow in the footsteps of others. He always wants to be a pioneer. So he's looking for areas that he can make his mark. There are a couple of very logical areas that come up right away. One of those is this newly emerging RPG genre, role-playing game genre. Arakawa himself was never a Dungeons & Dragons player. He was never a pen-and-paper RPG player. But he had friends that were into it, and I think also some of the employees, some of the part-time employees that he had at the store were also kind of into this. So he was aware of this concept of role-playing games, of pen-and-paper games. It dovetailed very nicely with some of his interests because he was very interested in the individual. Again, going back to his card game that he created in high school, where there were these challenges between individual people not just big military strategy units. We don't have complete knowledge, at least not in English, of what really got him on this RPG thing, but it was probably a combination of being fascinated in modeling systems. Because remember, that's kind of what got him into computer programs in the first place, is he was a systems guy. He became a programmer. And what he was very interested in programming when he started was office automation stuff, creating a system to manage inventory, creating a system to provide business quotes, creating a system to manage finances. So he was very interested in modeling real-world stuff in a computer program. That carried over very much into Kawanakajima no Kasen, as well as the investment game. He's modeling the real world through a statistical framework. He's putting this investment model in place, or he's building out the stats for cavalry and foot soldiers and aquabussers and all of these different military units. So you've got that aspect of him. He likes systems, and he likes modeling the world. He also likes a focus on the individual, even though he does military strategy games or his first game, rather, is a military strategy game. It's not like he's done 500 of them at this point. He really likes kind of modeling that individual characteristic, as evidenced by that card game that he created when he was a kid. So that's the second pass. And then the third pass is, he's even though he never really played them, he's learning about these new role-playing games from the people around him who are enthusiasts. So kind of for his next act, he's like, I will take this stuff I did, this modeling of units and combat and everything, and statistics, and apply it to individuals in a computer role-playing game. It's interesting, because this is the very early days. He creates what are almost certainly the first RPGs in Japan. There was no model for this yet in Japan. Most of the early computer RPGs in Japan stuff that comes out just a little later than Arakawa's first work, is either modeled on Ultima or Wizardry. Most of it is modeled on Ultima. A handful are modeled on Wizardry. It comes from the West and then is absorbed by the East. We've talked about this in some of our episodes on the early Japanese computer game industry and, and of course, on Dragon Quest, which takes us to the extreme on consoles, etc., That's the main line of influence for Japanese RPGs. But Arakawa is working before that. He's working before Ultima 3 was released, which was really the Ultima that fired the imagination of the Japanese. 
He's working right after Wizardry has been released in the United States and has not migrated to Japan yet. So the model that he actually has is not the tile-based graphical system of the Ultimas or the first-person dungeon views of the Wizardries. What he's still working from at this very early and primitive juncture is text games, because text adventures have started to make themselves known. Parser-driven games have started to make themselves known, but RPGs haven't yet. So in 1982, he creates a game called Underground Exploration, releases it on the Japanese computer platforms of the day, mainly the NEC PC 8001 and 8801, their pioneering desktop computers. It's based on the Dungeons & Dragons paradigm. I mean, it doesn't rip off the rules of Dungeons & Dragons one for one, but he's learned about RPGs even though he doesn't play them. So it has this idea of very early D&D, which is that you form a party of adventurers and you go explore a dungeon to fight monsters and collect treasures. It's almost entirely text-based. There's no graphics. Because that's kind of the paradigm, like, he doesn't have an RPG model to work with, but the idea of parser-driven games is already understood. The idea of text adventures is already understood. So it kind of combines elements of the text adventure with the elements of doing a Dungeons & Dragons-style game. It's interesting in that way, because it's, uh, it's an evolutionary dead end. This is not the way RPGs go even in Japan. But it's always interesting to see, like, how some of these genres start to develop before the standard, because what usually happens in any genre is that there are a bunch of people that make these weird little things, and then one person's weird little thing is liked by everybody, and then that one person's weird little thing becomes the thing going forward. So most Japanese computer RPGs, they're ultimas. A handful of them are wizardries, and this one, Underground Exploration, is neither, because it predates exposure to either of those games in Japan. It's a very interesting parallel evolution of the same concept. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So he does Underground Exploration in early 1982, and he does another RPG that comes out at the tail end of 1982 that's called Dragon and Princess. It's derived from this Dungeons & Dragons mentality. It's, it's a more advanced version, essentially. I mean, it's not a reboot or something. It's just it's an advancement on the ideas that he had in his Underground Exploration game. It's a more advanced game. But the fascinating thing is that it combines some of his military strategy stuff with the RPG. And it has a tactical combat system where you have your five characters. And when you get into a battle, you know, it zooms into this space where you move around these five characters and go after the monsters who are moving around and attacking you. And I know what you're thinking, Jeff. Because you're an Ultima fan, you're like, okay, what's so special about that? They call it Ultima 3, thank you very much. But this is the thing. Ultima 3 was released in 1983. This game was released in late 1982. He did Ultima-style tactical combat before Ultima did it. It's that same parallel evolution again. It is. It doesn't mean that you are precluded from actually advancing and creating something unique. You can come up to the same idea of like, hey, this sounds good. Let's do it because I already did it sort of over here. Exactly. And, you know, we're, we're not in any way saying that somehow Richard Garriott, Lord British, saw this really obscure, limited release, Japan only RPG and stole his combat from it. Because, of course, that's not what happened. 
Richard Garriott came up with the same thing himself when he created Ultima 3, because the first two Ultima games had been single adventurer games where you only controlled one person, and they grew out of his work on Akalabeth, which had been a first-person dungeon crawl influenced by Silas Warner's game Escape. So the first two Ultimas had dungeons that were first-person, and you fought things in that first-person mode. It was only when he got to the third game and you were controlling a party of multiple characters that he had to come up with a system to represent multiple characters at once. And so he came up with a tactical combat system, and he did that entirely on his own. They didn't steal from each other. But it's a fascinating parallel evolution because, of course, that was one of the truly heralded uh, things about the Ultima games was the combat system. Here's Yoichawa all on his own doing it first, but it makes sense that Arakawa would come to that because he'd already done his military strategy game where you're moving units around a map in a tactical situation. And so it just kind of made sense to translate that into combat with individuals against monsters in a dungeon setting as well. Both of those games, I mean, they're very obscure today. They're very rare, hard to find. I think they did okay for the company in their own time, but it's just, remember, the market is just entirely tiny at this time. So they're very obscure today, but these are truly pioneering games. They didn't start the RPG craze in Japan. That really started about a year later when the Black Onyx came out from uh, Hank Rogers and the Ultimate Wizardry games started to get more play. We can't really say that Arakawa was responsible for launching the RPG craze in Japan. In fact, in 1984, releases another RPG by the name of Dungeon, and by this time we can see that he's joined the crowd, because this is after Black Onyx and Ultima and Wizardry and all of that have come out, and so now he's moved into making the same kinds of games with the tile-based overworlds and the first-person dungeons and all of these elements that are standard in, in things like Ultima and Wizardry, because that's where the market went. So we can't say that Arakawa launched Japanese role-playing games, but we can say he was first to get there. This was something very unique to him that no one had ever done before. Just like his first military strategy game, he's really carving his own path under the name, of course, Ko Shibusawa, which is how everyone knows him. Just as Richard Garriott was Lord British, there was no Yuichi Arakawa. There was only Ko Shibusawa. We are about to discuss the erotic games. If you would like to skip ahead, go to 1 hour 55 seconds. So the other interesting thing that happened at this time, at the same time he's doing these RPGs, is he's also, funnily enough, pioneering erotic games as well, which is something that the company very much started to distance itself from in later years for understandable reasons, because there is a stigma around that thing, even in Japan, where things aren't as stigmatized as they are in the United States. There's still a, a very big stigma around that kind of thing. Getting into adult games, they did in a kind of interesting way. It goes back again to his interest in systems. It really had nothing to do with wanting to necessarily do adult software. But at the time, he read some stories, you know, in newspapers or magazines or wherever about people that had difficulty conceiving, difficulty having children. He had read about something called the Ogino Method, which is a theory that was proposed by a doctor by the name of Hisasaku Ogino that said if you charted out the menstrual cycle 
of a particular woman. You could figure out when they were going to be at their most fertile and try to have sex during that time frame to increase your odds of conceiving a child. He thought it might be interesting to create a computer program that was basically a utility program that allowed people to chart the menstrual cycle and chart the fertility cycle and actually use this piece of software to try to have kids. Because he was a game player and because he's interested in games, he didn't just want it to be a dry, like, chart program. He didn't want it to be like an inventory management program where you just enter some figures into a spreadsheet and, and, you know, then see what it spits out. He decided that he wanted to gamify it a little bit. So he turned it into a game. You did enter in information about menstrual cycle and kind of set things up like that. But he also decided to put in different sexual positions and how much time to be in any sexual position and kind of make a game of it, seeing how successful you could be at conceiving using all of these variables. It wasn't meant to be a game game or a dirty game. It was meant to legitimately be a tool. But he put some game elements in it just to keep it kind of interesting. They released that game, software tool, whatever you want to call it, called Nightlife, and it ended up having some success. So he decided, okay, well, people are obviously getting something out of this. Just as a challenge, just as an an interesting experiment, why don't I see if I can take these same principles but make an actual game out of this? Get rid of the utility, self-help program, whatever aspect of it altogether, and just make a game. So he decided to essentially create a pornographic adventure game, which he named Banchizuma no Yuwaku, which translated is Seduction of Condominium Wives. The name Condominium Wives is kind of a, a pun because you play a condom salesman who lives in an apartment complex, and your job is to sell condoms to women that live in your same apartment complex. So condominium complex, in this case, is a play on words referencing the condom salesman. It's an RPG. It's an adult RPG. You have stats. The women have stats. And different women respond better to different command inputs. It's like taking a lot of the concepts from his RPGs, which, remember, are very text-based at this time. You know, parser commands. You have stats, but you're entering parser commands. But instead of typing commands to fight monsters based on your stats and their stats, you're typing commands to convince women to buy condoms from you based on your stats and their stats and uh, seducing them in the process. So in short, he made pretty much the first period tracking software (laughs) and then decided to up it by going and making pretty much one of the first dating sims. In a way, yeah. I mean, it's it's more of a sex sim than a dating sim because it's not the crushinator. You're not romancing them first. You're basically just getting right down to it after proving compatibility by executing a few commands. It's the first erotic game, first adult game in Japan. I mean, not the first anywhere. Soft porn adventure had already been done by Sierra back in 1981. But in Japan, Nightlife and Seduction of Condominium Wives were very much two of the first adult erotic games. These were so popular that he actually created a separate label. They're still Koei games, but they created a separate label called Strawberry Porno for these. And so it became the Strawberry Porno series. 
it was followed up by another game called Orandazuma wa Dinkikuagi no Yume wo Maruka. I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation, but live with it. Which translates as Do Dutch Wives Dream of Electric Eel? It's a play on the title of the Philip K. Dick short story, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which was the basis for the movie Blade Runner. This time, it's set in Tokyo's red light district, and you're a private investigator who has been tasked with finding the missing sex doll, or Dutch wife. I'm assuming they're colloquially called that in Japan, though I I don't know, but I assume that's why that term is used here. A sex doll has gained sentience, and you're a private investigator trying to find this person's sex dolls. You know, it's it's a play on Blade Runner slash Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep when you're trying to track down the replicant. It's similar to the Condominium Wives game. The way that you figure out who the sex doll is is by sleeping with all the women until you figure out which one of them's not a woman, but is a sex doll instead. Again, you have stats, they have stats. This time, though, you do have to actually romance these women a bit first. You actually do take them on dates to places. This one is a little more of a dating sim. This time, it is like the Crushinator. You have to romance women like these first. You have to court them to get them to sleep with you. And again, they have different likes and dislikes, and taking them on various dates will raise and lower meters. It's all very statistics-driven, which is Arakawa's big thing. And then, once you get them in bed, you have to choose from different sex-related commands to successfully pleasure the woman, so you can figure out whether they are, in fact, the robot or not. Yeah, so, I mean, he's all over the place here. He's made a military strategy game. He's made a stock investing game. He's made some of the very first RPGs in Japan, which are almost more adventure game RPG hybrids. And he's made the first erotic games in Japan. All in this time period between 1981 and 1983, being very prolific. Then, of course, in 1983 as well, comes his biggest, most important game, and the game that puts the company on the map, and the game that remains not their best-selling of all time, but their most significant of all of their games, which is, of course, Nobunaga no Yabu, which in English translates into Nobunaga's Ambition. Once again, with Nobunaga's ambition, we're taken back to all of Arakawa's pastimes and interests and fusing them together into this one defining moment. It starts, of course, with his interest in programming and his interest in strategy games. He's done these RPGs, he's done these erotic games, that's all fine. But what he really does love is strategy games. There's a reason that his first game was the Battle of Kawanakajima. As we saw, and I know I keep bringing this up, but as we saw with his love of history and with his card game that he made as a child, he really likes getting at the individuals that shaped history. Some great man theory going on here. Modern historical scholars would scoff and say, people don't shape history, social forces do. But for our purposes here, Arakawa is fascinated by the people that shape history. It's all fine and good to model armies, like he did with Battle of Kawanakajima. What he's really interested in is the leaders, the people behind the armies, these ambitious warlords in the Warring States period of Japanese history that were trying to conquer all of Japan and become the master of all of Japan. What drove them? 
What were their personalities like? How did they gain followers? How did they command? How did they lead? How did they triumph? How did they fail? That's what really fascinated him more than anything else. So for his follow-up military game, he didn't just want to model conflict. He didn't want to just model the military. He wanted to model the individual leaders, and he wanted to model the resource allocation and gathering they needed to do in order to raise and sustain their armies, win over the loyalty of their people, and triumph over their enemies. One of the individuals that particularly interested him was Oda Nobunaga, one of these daimyo of the Warring States period, who was the first individual that came very close to unifying all of Japan. He's known as the first great unifier of Japan. He came to power by overthrowing the Ashikaga shogunate. So remember, Arakawa is from Ashikaga and is particularly steeped in the history and culture of his home region. That's what really fired a lot of his interest in history. I think part of his fascination with Nobunaga is that he started his rise, you know, in this area. And he conquered most of the island of Honshu but was killed in 1582 in an ambush and fell just short of his dream of unifying the entirety of Japan. So this was a figure that particularly fascinated Arakawa, so he wanted to do a game that was set in that period of history where you're setting out to conquer all of Japan. Instead of just being a battle setup, a tactical war game setup, like his first game, or like most strategy games at this time, this is actually a grand strategy game before the concept of grand strategy games existed. Now, when I talk about grand strategy, what I'm talking about is the games of primarily like Paradox Interactive, games like Europa Universalis, Crusader Kings, Hearts of Iron, etc., where you're not just a war game because you're not just moving armies across the map but you also have to pay attention to what's going on in your territories, balance resources, balance your population, and take care of all of these other things going on in your empire in addition to just the pure military side of things. That's often given the label grand strategy. You could also liken it to something like a 4X strategy game like Civilization, except that in a game like this, it is still at the end of the day a conquest, a war game. It's not like there's the technological path to victory. It's not, I mean, there's not a technology tree at all. I'm just saying it's not like there are other paths to victory. You know, it really is at its heart still a war game, but it's a war game with more layers on top of it, kind of this concept of grand strategy. And again, this is way before Paradox Interactive. This is way before Sid Meier's Civilization. This is a period of time where you don't see anything like this anywhere. It's not just unique in Japan. You don't see this in the United States yet either. There are war games in the United States by 1983, and some of these war games from companies like SSI do take place on a rather large scale. But there's still not these games where you're like basically controlling a country, even though a lot of it's abstracted. It's not like a more modern game where you have tons of stuff to do on that management side. But you're not just controlling armies, you're also keeping track of resources like food and stone and taking care of your people and conquering territories. But then when you get into combat with another army, then, you know, you go into a tactical mode and, and you're doing the whole military strategy thing. It's hexagonal, like many war games, and it's all about your positioning. 
he takes a lot of influence from Shogi and Go again, where board position and where you place your pieces has a lot to do with victory in the game. It's the same in Nobunaga's ambition. This is taking everything that he likes. It's his love of history. It's his love of individuals and modifying individual rulers. It's his love of strategy games. It's his love of programming computers. It's his love of creating multiple systems and putting them all together. This is the truly defining game of the company. This is the game that sets it on the course that it's still on today. Even though they've branched out into other areas, which we'll talk about in part two, and they're not strictly a military strategy company or a historical strategy or a grand strategy company anymore. This is the game that defines their path and makes them well-known for this particular type of game, and it's follow-ups of the same type of game, like the Romance of the Three Kingdoms series, which takes this into China's own period of strife, the Three Kingdoms period, when there was a lot of internecine war. He does a Genghis Khan game. He does all of these other games following on from this, and they become known as the premier historical strategy game maker in Japan and one of the premier computer game companies in Japan. I mean, I don't know that they're one of the best sellers. The game is certainly popular, but I don't know what the sales figures were like compared to other computer games. But there's no doubt that they were one of the more well-regarded companies. Now, of course, there were a lot of Japanese PC game companies at the time, and only a few of them are really still active or known about today. And in the vast majority of cases, there are some exceptions, but in the vast majority of cases, those were the companies that were able to successfully transition to consoles. Companies like Square and Enix. Koei is also going to not only successfully make that transition, but then build on its early know-how in historical strategy games, which is how they first come to consoles, branch out into completely different areas to become one of Japan's most successful publishers. Now, they're never top one or two or even top five, but they are top ten as far as Japanese video game publishers even still to this day. Now that we've kind of established who the Arakawas are, how they got involved in this business, the kinds of games that they made to rise to prominence, and the kinds of genres they were pioneering, next time, in our second part of this two-parter, we will look at their transition to console, moving Nobunaga's ambition onto console, and then branching out from there to do other series like Dynasty Warriors to become one of the most incredibly successful companies in Japan right up to this day when they are the creators of the phenomenally successful game Fire Emblem Three Houses, which, yes, I know is Nintendo, and I know is Intelligent Systems, but they actually subcontracted out to Koei for that, who actually did the design of the game. So we'll kind of look at that console aspect and bring Koei into more of the present day in part two. I will have example of a lot of these games in the show notes. I will try to get as many of them as I can. Nobunaga's ambition is actually really fascinating, especially for the time period. You look at the graphics on this thing, it's really, really good. It may not be super color, but Mm -hmm. the detail is really, really good. In the combat with the hexagons going on, you actually have terrain differences, and then you are saying like, hey, I want to lower the taxes on my peasants. The peasants are happy! (laughs) It's very much in the vein of, like you said, the grand strategies and other stuff before that really took place. Exactly. Arakawa is a trailblazer, period. As we said, it's just, he's a great programmer. 
He's really interested in modeling the real world through creating systems of various types. And you put these skills together with a love of history and a love of traditional strategy games, and you get someone who is actually kind of unique in this history of video games. I mean, obviously no one's truly unique. He comes at this from a different direction than almost any of the other early game creators, and that's why his products here stand out as so different and so innovative compared to what's going on uh, at the same time from other people and other companies. Yeah, the parallel evolution is really fascinating. Absolutely. Next time on They Create Worlds, where we discuss more Koei and maybe they'll actually become Tecmo. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. You can also just leave your support in any way you want by leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting service. You can contact us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 